Well, uh, next week is the last sermon in our series on the book of Job. Then we begin our Advent series, which will be on Psalm 2 this year, Lord willing. Last week in his sermon, Dr. Coffin served us well, even though his sermon was not specifically on Job and didn't even know we were going through a series on Job. He covered some subjects that free us up to focus on uh, a more narrow uh, topic this morning because uh, what he preached on I was going to try to include in today's sermon. Even though he didn't mention the story of Job, he, uh, he taught on the subject. And so I want to say a few things just in in sort of summarizing what he said last week um, before we get into this week's scripture. Um, as we've seen in the story of Job, Dr. Coffin talked about how in this life God doesn't bring punishments according to what a person deserves. There is no one-to-one -one correspondence between the degree of one's sin and the degree of the suffering one experiences in this life. And he pointed to Luke 13 as one of a number of passages which uh, demonstrate this. This was the mistake that Job and his friends made. And there are several problems with this mentality. This idea that there's a correspondence, a one-to-one -one correspondence between your sins and your sufferings ignores the eternity, for one. It focuses on this world and it ignores eternity. It ignores the depth and profundity of human sin. That we all are, are uh, you know, fail to live in a way that that warrants God's reward. And finally it focuses on justice, but it misses grace. You see, this world that we live in is n not the world of God's just judgment, but the world of God's patience and mercy, as he said last week. Then, if this is the world of God's mercy, we might ask, why do terrible things happen? Well, one of the ways God in his mercy is loving the world right now is by giving the world glimpses of the future. The future judgment which is to come upon the world. For it's a loving thing to warn of danger. And when we hear the news about terrible things which happen to people and when we go to hospitals and see the wounds and the diseases and the agony and we, when we experience them ourselves, it gives us a little taste of what is justly coming to those who refuse the grace of the gospel. However, in this world, the Lord is also doing something else through suffering. For his children, God sends calamities to purify and strengthen his people and to teach them to trust. So those are some of the things that he talked about last week. This week we're going to focus on two passages 
late in the book of Job, which look at the heir of Job and its friends from a different angle. First one is from Job, verses 10 to 14. God speaking to Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together and bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. The second reading is from Job 41. I'm going to read the first two verses and then skip a few and go to verse 7. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And then skipping to verse 7. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So let's look at these two passages and talk about what they're saying. In the first one, in Job 40, 10 to 14, God is speaking to Job. He's saying, Job, you've been acting like you think that you're God. Okay then, go ahead. Let's see what you can do. Adorn yourself with majesty, Job. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor if you think you're God. Point, pour out your anger and tread down the wicked. Bring down the proud and put them in their place. Hide them all in the dust together. Do those things, Job, and then I'll acknowledge that you don't need me. That your right hand can save you. You see, deep down... Job, like all of us, wanted to be God. And that really is at the core of our sinfulness. We want to be the lawgiver. We want to be the judge. We want our will to be followed. We want to be acknowledged, exalted, appreciated, vindicated. And God saw this tendency in Job's desire to vindicate himself, even to the point of implicating God. But God loved Job too much to feed this vile lust. He wanted to vindicate Job before his friends who judged him wrongly, but first he needed to put Job in his place to remind him that he indeed is not God. So that's what's going on in Job 40. And in Job 41, it's actually quite similar. But this time God points Job's attention 
to the mighty Leviathan. Now the Leviathan was a great sea monster which no man wanted to deal with. He was the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the sea. So God asks, Job, can you catch the Leviathan with a fish hook? Or tie a rope around his dangerous mouth to keep it shut? Can you put a cord in his nose or put a hook through his jaw to confine him? Can you bring him under control with harpoons or fishing spears? Go ahead, Job. Try to get him under control. Even if you survive, you'll say, I'll never do that again. Job, no man has a chance against Leviathan. Even the sight of this monster is enough to make the bravest of men shake in their boots. Even the fiercest of men don't dare stir him up. Job, if this is the way it is with Leviathan, which I created, who then is the one who can stand before me and gain mastery over me? And then God adds one more comment that at first seems like it doesn't follow. He says this in verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What God is saying here is that if the fiercest of men can't pin down Leviathan, can't order him around, can't lay a claim on him, how in the world can you ever lay a claim upon me? If man's finest ropes and hooks and harpoons and fishing spears can't bring Leviathan to heel, what tool do you have, Job, to bring me to heel? You have no power over me. Everything in the world is mine. You have not given me anything that puts me in your debt. Job, you act like I owe you something. You speak as if I have not treated you justly, as if you deserve better. But the fact is, Job, you don't deserve anything. You have no tool to hold over me. If I give to you, it is because I choose to give to you, because I owe you. Are true for us just like they were for Job. God doesn't owe us anything either. If we're going to understand what it means to believe in the God of the Bible, we must understand who he is and who he isn't. Job and his friends and many others down through the ages and many in the world today had a very mistaken concept of God and of our relationship with him. And this concept is corrected. This erroneous concept is corrected in the book of Job. That's one of its great values to us. We're not dealing with someone we can control. We're not dealing with a God who needs us, you see. We're not dealing with a God who has need of anything. He owns everything there is, including you and me. 
The feeling that God owes us something is based on the assumption that, in essence, we're on the same level as God, the same playing field. But this is far from true. God draws near to us. God stoops down to us. God even sends his son to earth as a human. But before all of that, God is other. God is high and lifted up. God is not part of this world. God is not part of the universe. He is outside it. You know, in every relationship we have in this life, there is some kind of arrangement, some kind of agreement or understanding as to the nature of that arrangement that we have with another. For instance, a parent's relationship to his or her young child is very different than the relationship that parent might have with the store they shop at. The arrangement we have with a store is that it, it determines the conditions of its availability to us, the hours that it opens its doors, the things available for purchase, the cost of each item. But though the store makes things available to you and to me to buy, we're under no obligation to buy any certain item or even a shop there at all. So there are, there are certain arrangements that we all understand before we walk into a store. When you have a child though, it's completely different. You don't have a choice. You have enormous obligations to provide protection, sustenance, education, and many other things. And this is true even if your child is incapacitated in some way and unable to do things for him or herself. And even though your legal obligation lasts only until they're 18, your moral obligation lasts for a lifetime. So you can see that these two arrangements are extremely different. With a store you have a transactional with a child, you have a covenantal relationship. It's important to understand the nature of the relationship before you enter into a relationship. What are your obligations? What are the benefits and that, so that you can build your expectations? Etc. And before entering into a relationship with God, you ought to understand what you're getting into. Jesus himself urged this in Luke 14, 27 to 32. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And you know, and I know that you've driven by many buildings and had that thought if you haven't made that comment itself. Or what king, he said, 
going out, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So it's important that before we enter into a relationship with God that we understand what is involved and what this, the nature of this relationship is. So what is the, relation, the arrangement that we have with God? What is the nature of our pact with him? What is the understanding we have between him and us? Though he does not lay, though he does, I'll get to that in a minute, doesn't owe us anything. We've seen that. But he right to feel cheated by God. He sets the rules. He tells us what to do. We don't tell him what to do. We can ask. We can plead. We can even beg. But we must never demand as if we're in charge of him somehow. And he's our servant, our slave that we can order around. Acts 17 24 to 25 where Paul is preaching the gospel in Athens he, it gives us insight into this he says the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What does it mean that God is not served by human hands? Aren't we all supposed to serve God? Well, God allows us to serve him and serving him is what we ought to do. And indeed, we are obligated to serve him. But God doesn't actually need our service. Our service ultimately doesn't do him any good. He is perfectly happy in himself and doesn't need anything. Verse 25 goes on to say this, that God does not need anything. Unlike us, he is completely independent and self-sufficient. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. You see, we're not in a mutual give and take relationship with, when it comes to God. Where we scratch his back and he scratches ours. Where we pay him money and he gives us a, some kind of product. He doesn't need anything. And he doesn't owe us anything. Now it's true, as the great hymn says, the protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. But it's important to notice that this is not a charge which was imposed on him by anyone. It is a charge that on himself he laid. 
he's committed himself to do something and he's promised that he will do it and he is true to his promises but this promise is not given out of any obligation whatsoever it is given purely out of love out of grace and God also reserves the absolute right to decide the details of how we are to be taken care of because he knows better than we do. This is similar to the way the parent of a young child insists on deciding when the child crosses the street and whether the child and what the child watches on TV for instance now the child may disagree and feel cheated but that doesn't mean that the parent isn't being loving and it doesn't mean that the parent isn't doing right or being wise but even though a parent might be unloving and might be unwise God never is but here's what often happens God is so gracious and so kind that it's easy to get accustomed to his generosity and it's easy to begin to expect it and it's easy for this expectation to evolve to the point where we feel cheated when God doesn't deliver and when we get to that point we've gotten to the exact point that Job and his friends had come to and it's a dangerous place and God is kind to not just let Job drift in that direction but to interrupt him by asserting his authority and he's kind to us to do the same kind of thing sometimes for sometimes like Job we need to be put in our place we need to be reminded that he is God and we're not now this may seem discouraging to you and it is to our ego to our love of ease to our sense of entitlement to our ambition to be God part of us would prefer a relationship with God which is based on our own good performance where God says wow you are so good that I can't resist rewarding you with many blessings the problem is we're not so good if our blessings were to correspond with our performance we would be getting curses instead of blessings and God is perfectly just he doesn't grade on a curve much to our chagrin if we're going to get a reward from God therefore it's going to be by grace it's going to be based on pure undeserved unearned unmerited favor and the story of Job does not leave us wondering if in fact God will in the end be gracious to Job 
In the final chapters of the book, God's grace comes back like a flash flood upon his beloved Job. But only after he's had enough time and enough struggle and experienced enough pain to know that it's grace. It's only grace. This is such good news to those who know they're real sinners. To those who know they are sick unto death unless the doctor comes to help them. If we know this, the news about grace is a great boon to our faith. It gives great hope to calamities and sorrows and fears. It's a great fuel for our worship. You know, in the book of Romans, if you understand anything about the structure of Romans, just like many of Paul's letters, you know, he goes through the explanation of the truth, and then the last part, he applies that glorious truth and tells us how to live according to that. In the book of Romans, it's the first 11 chapters where he details the story of redemption, and then he transitions in chapter 12 through the rest of the book into the application of this into the Christian life. But at the very end of chapter 11, right before he dives into the application of what he's been saying, after he details all these glorious things about what Christ is doing and and how amazing it is and glorying in um, the the marvelous wisdom of God in bringing all this to pass, he ends with this benediction, with this time where he's just worshiping God at the very end of chapter 11. And in doing that, he actually quotes one of the verses that's in our passage this morning. Job 41.11. Let me read you what Paul says. The last verse that I read is the one he quotes from Job. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? It's amazing that in spite of who he is, yet he, in all his wisdom, has seen fit to show us grace. This humbles us. It reminds us of who we're dealing with when we deal with God. But there's more than this. Not only does this teach us important things about a relationship with God, everything that God gives us, He gives us by grace. He doesn't owe us anything. 
but he lavishes such bounty upon us. Think about Job. How rich he was. Children and flocks and herds and servants and lands and houses and so much. All of that was from God. Not because of who Job was, not because Job was so righteous, but because of God's grace. Even Job's righteousness, which we began the story with, and he was indeed a man, when you compare him to others, his peers, who stood high above the others in his righteousness. But even that was a gift of God. Not something that Job could boast in. God is a very gracious God. And we must never feel deprived as his children. If we're in Christ, even the things God doesn't give us, he withholds because of his merciful love for us. And when we fail, what great comfort there is from the knowledge of God's grace. Our relationship with God is not based on what we do. If our relationship with God was based on just desserts, we would all be sent home empty-handed because none of us deserve anything from God but his just punishment. But our relationship with God is based on his grace. And this grace, of course, was shown in its fullness through Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died as our substitute on the cross, so that the justice and the grace of God could both be maintained and established. But what about those who are not in Christ? Even they live by his grace. Every breath they take is his gift. Every bite of food, every person who loves them has been moved to love them by God. Every joy, every happiness, every protection, every deliverance, all their money, all their relationships, all their possessions, all their accomplishments, they are all from God. Even their sanity is a gift from God, as we learn from the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Why would God show grace to those who don't believe in him? Well, Acts 17.27, which is just a, following the verses we read earlier from Paul speaking in Athens, tells us that it is so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. And Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So that's why God is kind, even to those who do not believe in him. So what do we owe God? Yeah, he doesn't owe us anything. 
But what do we owe God? Well, we owe him everything. Why? Because he's given us everything. He's given us more than we could ever pay back. So our debt to him is impossibly great. And we see this in some of our songs. You know, we see this in uh, the end of the When I Survey. You know, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's where the scriptures bring us. God is our great benefactor. And we are ever in his debt, but he is never in ours. Now, as we come to the table of our Lord this morning, we come to celebrate the greatest gift of all, where God gave Christ to us and where he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is a precious opportunity, not only to remember, but to draw near, to surrender, to yield our soul, our life, our all to the one who deserves that and much more. Oh Lord our God, what a great privilege. What a great feast you have set before us. And Lord, we know that it's a costly meal. But you've invited us to come even though we have no money Come, buy, and eat. But Lord, we have no money. But you say, come anyway. Because the cost has already been paid for. We thank you that you bore the cost for us. Oh Lord, may every heart prepare you room this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.